0: Thank you, Sandy, and I uh, love the, the ministry of our missions team and how many efforts are going on missionally right now is just a huge blessing, so appreciate uh, all the updates. Um, well, good morning, and if you have your Bible today, you can take it out and open it up to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is where we're gonna be today for our sermon text, and um, as, you're, as you're turning there, I just wanna mention a couple things. You know, Jaron already said this, but I want to reiterate it. Um, if you are new with us today, I just want to extend a warm welcome to you. We are so glad that you're joining us. If it's your first time here at Maine or over at East or online, it is a blessing to have new guests with us every week. Um, we are a church that exists to know Christ and make Him known. That's why we're here, and we are glad that you're here with us today. So welcome. And also, for those of you who are regular parts of uh, regular attendees or members of UBC, you know if you were here last Sunday, you knew that last Sunday was a little bit different for us. We uh, had an involvement fair that was put on, we shortened our services, and I just wanted to say that it was a blessing to see so many of you take initiative and want to hear more about ways that you can get involved in our church. We had so many conversations with people out at our tables, many people being followed up with. We had like 60 people at the... The Make Him Known group that I lead for new people in our church. It was just incredible to see how many people are wanting to get involved. And so uh, I'm grateful to be part of a church where people are excited to be involved. So that's, you know, a thank you to you for making that happen. Um, As we get into today's message, I just want to start out by asking you a question. And here's the question. Have you ever had an argument with another Christian? Obviously, right? Have you... I mean, like a biggie, like a big argument. You have one that just really blew up because I have a friend who, uh, when he was in college, he told told me this story about when he was in college. Uh, he and some college buddies of his they decided that they were going to have a nice little debate about Calvinism and Arminianism. And, uh, you know, if you're not familiar with those terms, it's the big theological question. Do we choose God or does he choose us? Do we have free will or, you know, is it, uh, you know, or, or do we not have free will and everything's just about God's sovereign choice? So the debate started out nicely and they had their Bibles open and they're being friendly. But before long, he told me that they were on the floor punching each other in the face. Okay, this is where that, by the way, they're both pastors now. (laughs) <laughs> which is, uh, Which is kind of perfect. But, um, you know, so they're both pastors now, and they're still friends. But sometimes people in the church have disagreements, don't they? Man, sometimes people in church have disagreements, for sure. I've had them. You've had them. If you've been to a church that has business meetings, you've seen them, right? For sure. Um, I've been involved in several, like, serious debates or disagreements. Sometimes they have to do with doctrine. Sometimes they have to do with church procedures. Sometimes they have to do with People and you know, personal interpersonal friction, but sometimes, man, people in the church have serious disagreements. And in our sermon text today, we are going to start a chapter in the book of Acts that is marked with a handful of really big disagreements amongst people in the church. So today, we're going to continue on in our sermon series through Acts, we're going to be in chapter 15 today. Um, You know, this is what week like 34 or so in this sermon series, and Up till this point, many key things have happened. Um, In chapter 1, Jesus commissioned out his disciples and said, I want you to go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. In chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, he sent the Holy Spirit to fill them with power to be his witnesses. Chapter 3 through, I don't know, uh, 7 or so, the apostles are going out in and around Jerusalem being his witnesses. And then chapter 8 through 13 They're going out to the remaining regions of the world to share the gospel. And we left off in chapter 14 with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, his his missionary companion, returning home after their first missionary journey. If you recall, they had kind of started on the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea. Then they went over to Cyprus. And then they went north throughout modern-day Turkey. And they kind of did a loop up there. They visited cities like Lystra and Derbe and Iconium. Um, which, by the way, all, all of those cities are in a region called Galatia in you know, Bible times, which helps us understand when we read our New Testament letter to the Galatians, Paul is writing to those same churches that he started on that first missionary journey. Um, keep that in mind because that's going to become important later on in today's message. But they basically returned home by almost the same path that they came. They went back to their home church in Syrian Antioch, the church that had sent them out, And in Antioch, in their home church, they shared all that God had done on these missionary journeys. How many Gentile people had come to faith. How they had seen God move in power. And that's where we left off. They're back home sharing the good works uh, and the good news about what God had done. But like always, like we've seen in pretty much every section through the book of Acts, trouble gonna come, right? There's gonna be problems. Here they come, right? So once again, trouble's on the way. And as we pick up in chapter 15, You know, we're going to see it. So here's how we're going to work through today's message. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. We're going to make several teaching points along the way. And then we're going to end with a couple takeaways that are very personally applicable to us, but they're going to tie right into the big point of this text. And the big point of our passage is this. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone is a doctrine worth defending. It's a doctrine worth defending. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone is a doctrine worth defending. That's the big idea from our text. And so with that in mind, let's get into it. Look at verse one with me, if you will. Verse one of Acts chapter 15. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So you have these men they come to Antioch from Judea. If you remember, Judea was the region that was made up of mainly Jews. And so we know that these men are Jews because they come and they start advocating for Jewish law. Yeah, okay, all you new believers up here in the church in Antioch, they say, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you have to add some Mosaic law. You need to carry over the custom of circumcision if you want to truly be saved. So we might summarize it like this. They were teaching a doctrine that we might call Jesus plus Judaism. Jesus plus Judaism, that's what leads to your salvation. And so you have to remember, they came to Antioch, Syrian Antioch, um, and they were teaching this to a new church that was full of new believers who were mainly Gentiles. This church in Antioch was one of the first churches that was started among the Gentiles. And of course, Gentile people didn't keep the Jewish law, right? But here... Here come the Jews saying they need to. They need to keep it, especially the law of circumcision, which sets up the big question for today. And here's the question. Does salvation require the keeping of the law or parts of it or not? Right? In other words, is salvation granted by God's grace or is it earned by our works? That's the question. So we know that the Jews who came from Judea, um, we know that which side they were on. They, they said, yeah, there's, there's Jesus plus works. Paul and Barnabas disagreed, and we're going to see that as we keep working through our text. So, verse 2, look at verse 2 with me, if you will. Verse 2 says, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders uh, about this question. So, they had no small dissension or debate, just a big church fight, you know? Uh, This is what's going on. It was a big, intense debate. And the way they decided to settle this debate was they said, okay, let's take it back down to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders there. Because we've got to remember, there was a church in Jerusalem. The apostles were still there, even though um, some of them had had went and moved. Like Paul and Barnabas were preaching elsewhere. There were still some of Jesus' original apostles back in Jerusalem. That church had established its own elders. And so now they're saying, hey, these, these false teachers... These people who are teaching a a Jesus plus Judaism, they came from the church in Jerusalem. So let's send the matter down to the elders that are from their own local church and let them decide how they're going to handle it, okay? So that's what's going on. So verse 3, verse 3 says, so being sent on their way by the church, right? So that's the church in Syrian Antioch, they that's meaning Paul and Barnabas and the other believers, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. So this makes sense. Paul and Barnabas are traveling south down to, from Antioch down to Jerusalem. They were going through the regions of Phoenicia and Samaria, and in these regions, they're stopping and they're telling everybody what happened out on their first missionary journey, how the Gentiles were converted, how they had received the Holy Spirit, how God had worked in power. And this, of course, would have been exciting news to the people in Phoenicia and Samaria because Phoenicia and Samaria were non-Jewish regions. The churches there were made up of people who were not your typical Jew. They weren't Jews, so and they had been saved. So they're excited to hear that non-Jews in other parts of the world— are being saved and receiving the Holy Spirit just like they had. Okay, so now we get to verse 4. And when they, again, Paul and Barnabas, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So Paul and Barnabas, they make their way south, they come into Jerusalem, and we have to remember, again, in Jerusalem, there was an established local church there. Remember all the way back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, the gospel was preached. Thousands of people believed. Many of those people were out-of-towners who had come in for the festivals, but some of them were people who lived there, and they believed in Christ, and a church was started there. But here's what I don't think we often realize. Guys, from Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost to Acts chapter 15, where we are right now, guys, 18 years have passed. Okay, so that's a long time for the church to have matured in their faith, to grow in the Lord, to learn doctrine for these mainly Jewish converts to start to understand more about God's heart for the nations and his desire to reach all people. So the church was growing. Keep in mind that it's very likely that Peter was down in Jerusalem as one of the leaders in the church. He himself was one of the first people to preach the gospel and see Gentiles saved. We read about that in Acts chapter 10-11. and But this local church in Jerusalem welcomed Paul and Barnabas, and they're rejoicing in their reports about the salvations among the Gentiles on their first missionary journey. But, as always is the case in Acts, Paul and Barnabas and their companions just receive opposition after opposition. So here it comes again in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So you've got to notice, first of all, that Paul and Barnabas are being opposed by Pharisees. If you're not familiar with biblical history, the Pharisees were um, basically uh, Jewish religious leaders who were very knowledgeable of Scripture and very intent on keeping the law of Moses and even adding extra biblical uh, laws and procedures on top of those. Um, But here's what I want you to notice here. The Pharisees here in verse 5 are referred to as believers, right? So these are people in the church who are Pharisees, which is why it's really important for us to remember. This is, in God's sovereignty, he saved the Apostle Paul, who, if you remember, he was actually originally trained as a Pharisee, known as Saul of Tarsus among the Jewish community. So here Paul could easily relate to his uh, to this community of Pharisees that were in the church. He could understand what they were thinking. And remember, this was, this was the party of Pharisees that had always been in opposition to Jesus during his ministry. They were all about getting people to follow the law, not necessarily believe in Jesus. Um, but man, they, they, they show up again here in the ministry of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and they're advocating for the law again. In fact, they're not just advocating for the law, they're saying it is necessary right it is necessary sure you can believe in jesus but if you want to be saved and accepted by god then it is necessary we must command you to keep the law it is necessary for you to get circumcised right so they taught what they taught jesus plus judaism now we may not really understand that in our you know modern day midwestern evangelical world but we have to put ourselves in the mind of the first century jews Even those first century Jews who had believed in Jesus as Messiah, they had still been raised to treasure the law of Moses. It was valuable to them. It was precious to them. It was part of their life and their upbringing. They saw the law as a a blessing from God. In no way was it a curse in their mind, nothing like that. And so the idea of people becoming saved, but then just kind of dismissing the law, that was a massively challenging thought to them. And so that helps you understand why some of these Pharisees might have believed in Jesus but still been very attached to the law. So some of them, the Pharisees in the church of Jerusalem, were advocating for the need to keep parts of the law in order for people to be saved. And again, that's the big question. By what means is someone saved? Through Jesus Christ alone, faith in him, or by works? Obviously, the apostles like Paul and Barnabas believed it was through Jesus alone, but the Pharisees believed it was by Jesus plus works of the law. So, there's contention. So let's see what happened. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So, this is what became known as the Jerusalem Council. You might have a heading in your Bible that says something like that. The Jerusalem Council. So there's this meeting of the minds. And it says in verse 7 that after, had there, been, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So this is Peter referencing back to the events of Acts chapter 10 where in that chapter we we read about how he went to to speak to Cornelius, a non-Jewish man, a Gentile. Of course, Cornelius believed the gospel. His household was saved. Um, They were baptized. They received the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to remember about the story of Cornelius, it doesn't say that he believed and was circumcised and then was saved. It doesn't say that he believed and then committed to the Mosaic law and then he was saved. It does say he believed and then he received the Holy Spirit. Right. So that's the events that, those are the events that Peter is referencing in verse seven, whereby through his mouth the first Gentiles heard the gospel and believed. Peter keeps going in verse eight, and he says, "And God who knows the heart." Bore witness to them, talking about those first converts, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by, what's the word you say it? Faith. By cleansing their hearts by faith. So Peter says their hearts were cleansed by faith. Not by works, not by circumcision, not by law-keeping, but by faith. And God validated that their salvation was legitimate by giving them the Holy Spirit. So Peter continues and he says in verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So Peter starts to really be direct and call out these Pharisees, and he's saying, look, you're, you're dismissing the fact that God saved the Gentiles through faith, you're dismissing the fact that he poured out his Holy Spirit on them, you're, in doing that, you're putting God to the test, you're, you're testing his patience, don't do that. And Peter says, plus, by telling these new believers that they have to keep the law and, you know, go through circumcision, you're putting an, an unnecessary burden on these new believers and on top of that, when we ask them to keep the law, even all of our ancestors weren't even able to do that, all, you know, do that properly. So don't put that heavy yoke on them, he says. And a yoke, by the way, is uh, it was an instrument that was put over the backs and the necks of oxen. And as they plowed fields and whatever, the farmers could steer them through controlling the yoke. But it was a big, heavy, wooden device It would chafe them, it was uncomfortable, it was burdensome. And so Peter is opposing the Pharisees and does not want to put this yoke, uh, this, this burdensome yoke of the law on these new Gentile believers. And so he continues in verse 11 and here's what he says. Very clearly. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter states it so clearly. He says that he, just like all the other apostles, are gonna, they believe that they will be saved by grace, just like the new believing Gentiles are going to be saved by grace. Peter believed in salvation by grace, not by works. So to Peter, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone was a doctrine worth defending. That's what he's doing here. So verse 12 shows us how the crowds respond after hearing Peter. It says that all the assembly fell silent, And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So here we've got Paul and Barnabas with this great opportunity to testify about the mighty works that God had done. They start to recap these stories about their first missionary journey. You guys remember these stories that we've gone through over the past several weeks? How God shut down Elimus the sorcerer in Cyprus and actually brought Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus, to faith? How the gospel was preached and signs and wonders were done in Iconium, how the man born blind was healed in Lystra. And then the people came to Paul and Barnabas and said, you are gods. You're like Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas were like, no, you need to know the one living God. And they start to tell them all these stories about how plots were made to stone them. And one time the plot was uncovered and they were able to get out of town before they were stoned. The other time they actually did, uh, you know, incur a stoning on the, on the Apostle Paul. And, and he miraculously got up from it and went back on and continued to preach. And so they're telling all these stories about how the churches all around modern-day Turkey and Lystra and Derby and Iconium, how the churches, people believed churches were started, elders were appointed, and God was at work. And so they're recapping all these wonderful stories that God had done. And here's verse 13. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, so this is James, not James the Apostle, because as we read in the book of Acts, he's, he's already died. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He heard the complaint from the Pharisees. He heard the words of Peter. He listened to the testimony of Paul and Barnabas. And now he's going to be the one speaking on behalf of the council. He's, he's the, this, the leading voice, which, by the way, is a small little side note, but kind of an important one. It's more significant than we realize at first glance because it shows us that James is actually the leader of the early church in Jerusalem, not Peter, which has implications for some of the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and their beliefs about the the papacy and how Peter was the first pope and all that kind of thing. just a little side note, but it's an important thing for us to realize. It was James who was actually the leader of the church in Jerusalem, not Peter, Take that for what it's worth. All right, um, verse fourteen. Here's what James says. He says, "Brothers, listen to me." Simeon. He's talking about Peter. That's Peter's Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God has first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name, and with the words of uh, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here he starts to quote Amos chapter nine. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So what James is saying is like, man, guys, Peter's right. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. We don't need to fight against this. We don't need to act like this is something that God is, Not pleased with, because God told us all along, even in the prophets in the Old Testament, that some of the Gentiles were going to be called by his name. They were going to come into his family. In other words, God didn't say, uh, there's going to be Gentiles that become Jews first, and then they're going to be saved. James is saying, no, salvation for the Gentiles, apart from the Jewish law, it has been part of God's sovereign plan all along. And the Old Testament prophets told us, So now James delivers the verdict. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaimed him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what James is declaring here he's basically saying two different things to do two different groups of people to the pharisees and those who wanted to require the law for salvation james is saying no don't do that don't trouble the gentiles who have turned to god in that way don't put the law of moses or the circumcision on them it's a it's a it's a yoke that they can't bear they don't need to bear so that's his judgment for those who want to require the mosaic law for salvation. But, there's a second group. To the new converts, to the Gentiles who had believed, maybe they were thinking that they could just dismiss and totally disregard the law. And James says to them, no, don't do that either. And he lists a handful of law-related things that they should avoid and practices to take on, you know. They should avoid things like idols and blood and strangled stuff and sexual immorality. So, What's the big deal? Why those four things? What's the big deal about those in particular? If you come back next Sunday, I'll talk about it, okay? So teaser, hope you come back. Okay, we'll get into that next week. But what I want you to see today is that James and the Jerusalem Council essentially uphold the truth that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's the doctrine that they uphold. This was a huge decision that came down from the Jerusalem Council. Can you imagine if they would have sided with the uh with the Pharisees? Right? Instead of, instead of singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, we would be singing amazing circumcision, how sweet the sound. <laughs> be terrible, right? Like, no. Instead of singing uh like we did earlier, I'm a child of God by grace and grace alone, you know, we would be singing things like I'm a child of God through Christ and my good works. You know, we're going to sing in Christ alone in just a minute. We couldn't even sing that song if they had decided otherwise. But praise God they made the decision that they did because now we can sing and worship and praise God and give Him all the glory because our salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, not by our works. It's a gift from God and that is a doctrine worth defending. It is a doctrine worth defending. Now, what are the practical takeaways for us? I just want to give you two. Two basic takeaways for us today. The first one is this. Everybody in this room, you must believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. You must believe that. So, so many people, who maybe some of you even being here today, we have religious backgrounds that teach us different things. You may have something inside your conscience that says, I want to be right with God. I do want to have my sins forgiven. Um, and I, and I, you might even believe in Jesus like these Pharisees in the church in Jerusalem did. But we go astray when we start adding other things onto our faith in Jesus in order to be saved. And there are plenty of churches around, plenty of religious organizations around that will teach things that need to be added to your faith in order for you to be saved. And you can tell when somebody believes this because they'll say, you know, uh, oh, you know, I I'm good with God. I I got baptized. Um, I'm good with God. I I took I took communion. I went to confirmation. I joined the church. I I pray and I give money to the poor and sometimes, you know, I, I practice some of the parts of the law like the Sabbath and you know, I'm, I'm a good person. You know, how many people say that? I'm a good person. Guys, I want you to hear this. The, everything I just described, that is all indicators that you believe that salvation is actually by works, not by grace. Because you know what's at the center of all those things? What's at the center of all those things is not Jesus. It's you. I got baptized. I joined the church. I give money. I'm a good person. I, 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 I and it it detracts the glory from Christ, and you're trying to say, I did it. Here's what I want you to hear from me today. Unless you believe in salvation by grace, through faith in Christ alone, unless you believe in that, you actually believe in yourself. And maybe you've never realized it that way before. I'm, I want to expose that and show you that, It's like you're saying to Jesus when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished. It's like you're saying, well, yeah, but not really. I still have to do some stuff. Right? No, Jesus said it's done. Everything that needed to be done is done for you. So you have to ask yourself today, who am I really trusting in for my salvation? Am I trusting in my own works or at least some of them? Or am I trusting in Jesus' work to be sufficient for me? Church family, you've heard me say this before. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. If we could earn our own salvation by our works, then Jesus would have never had to come. So perhaps you are realizing today that you have a religious background that says in order to be saved, you have to have Jesus plus something. If that's you today, I... I want to, with love and tenderness in my heart, but also with directness, I want to call you to repent of your wrong belief, to repent of your belief in yourself, and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. His blood will cleanse you from all your unrighteousness, and you will be saved, secure, eternally, forever, because of Jesus. So trust in Christ alone. Here's the second takeaway for us today. Guys, we must understand, if you're a Christian, this is a doctrinal matter worth defending. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is a doctrinal matter worth defending. Not every doctrinal issue is, you know, a hill to die on like this, right? Like, we're not going to call a big public referendum to, uh, you know, decide should we, you know, speak in tongues, should we... Uh, you know, if you, if you have the wrong view on prophecy, are you not saved? No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to roll around on the floor and throw fists at each other like my college buddies because we're trying to figure out if God chooses us or we choose him or Calvinism or Arminianism. We're not going to do that and I'm certainly not going to call a church council business meeting uh, to figure out, you know, who's right about millennialism. Is it premillennialism, post-millennialism, all millennialism post-millennialism, amillennialism? I've said the classic preacher joke many times. I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out in the end anyways, right? So just roll with that. You'll be all right. Preacher jokes are the worst, I know. But but guys, some items really, some topics really are worth debating. They're serious enough. You know, it's, what is required for salvation is one of those issues. It's It's not just worth debating. It's worth dividing over if we have to. And, it's why we would divide from other churches or other religions or other organizations who preach a message of Jesus plus anything equals your salvation. I, we have to remember, like, this is the problem that the Apostle Paul dre- addressed in his letter to the Galatians. Just go read Galatians for yourself this week. It's all, the whole main point of Galatians is to say, are we saved by faith in Jesus or by our works? So you have to remember, Paul is now writing that letter to the Galatians. He's sending it to those churches that he started on his first missionary journey. He wrote the letter to the Galatians probably about a year after those churches started. By that point in time, you know, somebody had come to them preaching it's Jesus plus Judaism. It's probably the same guys who went from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and then they made their way, you know, kind of following Paul's path up to these other churches and eventually into the region of Galatia. And so then the Jerusalem Council happens and now Paul writes them the letter of the, uh, in the book of Galatians and he says, look, people who teach you this, they are Judaizers, they are troublemakers, they are preaching a different gospel, they pervert the message of Christ and Paul actually says in Galatians that people who teach this should be accursed. Now that's strong language. And I get it. It doesn't really sit very well with our nice little Midwestern 2020 culture. Okay, But... For Paul, man, the message of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, it was a truth worth defending and, if needed, dividing over. So I get it that some people, on one hand, avoid conflict at all costs and don't want to de- debate anything. Other people are looking for a conflict under, under every rock, and they're just trying to start arguments with everybody. So we must remember to actually practice Scripture here. script Many Scriptures call us to avoid conflict quarrels and foolish arguments. Titus chapter 3 verse 2 says that the church should avoid quarreling. 1 Timothy three, 3 says that elders must, in the church must not be argumentative or quarrelsome. Philippians 2.14 says that we should do everything without arguing. So in one sense, it's, avoid, it's, it's appropriate to avoid these worthless quarrels and arguments and we should avoid unnecessary arguments. On the other hand, the scripture also teaches there's some things worth arguing over. 2 Timothy 2.4 says that church leaders are to point out errors and warn people when their beliefs are going off. Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says sometimes it's going to be necessary to contend for the faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we should be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says that elders need to be ready to correct people who oppose sound doctrine. So how do we know? What issues are, are worth debating and which ones aren't Well, one thing we learned very clearly from Acts chapter 15 is that issues pertaining to salvation are worth debating, arguing, defending, and if necessary, dividing over. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Paul and Barnabas thought that that was worth debating. And so should we, if necessary. Our salvation is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Not by our works. And that, my church family, is a doctrine worth defending. Okay, let's pray. Lord, again, thank you for even the reminder right now as I pray that there is so much more at stake here than just being right about theology but that you intend people to believe this right theology. And if they don't, then they're lost and doomed and bound for hell. And so, Lord, I pray that as we think through doctrinal matters and consider the truth of Scripture, I pray that you would drive our hearts in the similar direction as it went for Paul and Barnabas and others, and that they wanted people to not just have a right belief, but they wanted people to be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that you would keep us from any sort of pride that might creep up in our hearts about just being right and give us a heart for the lost. I pray that you would help us to um, see the condition of people's souls that may be believing and acting opposite of what your word teaches here. Lord, give us your heart. That's really it. Lord, give us your heart. And Lord, I pray for anybody right now in this room who maybe even through this sermon today, they're starting to realize that although they've thought highly of Jesus and perhaps even believed in what he did on the cross, maybe they've today had their eyes open that they have thought they needed to add their works to be saved. I pray today they might repent of that and trust in Christ as the fully sufficient sacrifice for their sin. And Lord, for us as a church, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know what issues are worth debating and what doctrines are worth really fighting hard to stand for and which ones aren't. But Lord, when it comes to faithfulness in the gospel, I pray that you would let each and every one of us, by your grace and through the power of your Holy Spirit, have the courage to stand for it, to live for it, to die for it if needed. You, Lord Jesus, are our only hope, and it's in your name that I pray. Amen.